You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. My name is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, today, our topic is going to be autonomous vehicles separating the hype from reality. Is there hype around autonomous vehicles? I wasn't, uh, I wasn't aware of any <laughs> hype surrounding the technology at all. I have my friend Jeffrey Tumlin here. He is the principal and director of strategy at Nelson Nygaard Consulting. One of the few uh, speakers in this realm of public policy that I, I never miss if I can hear him. I enjoy hearing him talk, and I, he's got a lot of interesting things to say. Jeff, welcome to the uh, Strong Towns Podcast. So glad to be here. From Lyft, I've got the transportation policy manager, Corey Urshaw, right? Nailed it. Got, got it. Got it. We practiced that beforehand. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. I'm really interested to uh, get to know you and, and have you as part of our conversation as well. Thanks so much. I'm excited to talk AV. Cool. So autonomous vehicles, they will get you where you want to go safely. They will transform our cities. They will make us healthier, wiser, more productive. They will cure cancer, solve Midi's peace. Scramble eggs and uh, and what else? I'm not sure. They're already making my hair shinier and more lustrous. Your hair is beautiful. Yeah. I just have to say, <laughs> they they may not cure cancer, but they will certainly get people to their appointments. Let's uh, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. So autonomous vehicles. I'm sure there's an industry definition of what we're talking about. Can you just maybe let's start out with that an elaboration, Corey, if you would. We all are familiar with Uber and Lyft as like the next generation of taxi. How does autonomous vehicle kind of fit into that? How would you define it? How would you look at it? So when I'm going to be talking about autonomous vehicles, I'm mostly talking about uh, what's called level four and level five automation, which basically means that the vehicle can operate under at least most circumstances without any human interaction. So would these be vehicles where you would have like no one in a driver's seat, no steering wheel, no... Is that what a level four and level five is? You you may or may not have a steering wheel, but you would not need one. Okay. Jeff, where are we at today in this progression towards automated vehicles? I mean, I, I rented a car recently and I'm driving along and I had it on cruise control and all of a sudden it slowed down. And I'm like, what's wrong with this thing? I've got it on cruise control. And the problem was I was coming up on a vehicle. And it automatically slowed down. And I thought, what, what's, it took me a while to figure it out. And then it got to be kind of cool because I could come up to a vehicle and then switch lanes and then I would go by them. And then, so where are we at in this progressive march towards a level four and level five? Well, in many ways, we're already there. So, you know, I live in California. I do work in Mountain View and I see autonomous vehicles, effectively level four autonomous vehicles that still have a operator. Uh, they're ready to take over. Uh, but for the most part, those vehicles are operating themselves. Okay. Here's the question that I've kind of struggled with. I was at a presentation once that one of the Google car people did, and it was really fascinating. It seemed like they had conquered, and I'll, I'll use that in a broad sense of the term, over-the-road autonomous vehicles, interstate vehicles, you know, main roadways, places without a lot of complexity. But when we got to urban neighborhoods, everything changed. You're nodding your head. 
Okay, what 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 am I sensing here that we need to give voice to? So humans, like our brains are designed to be able to make a huge number of decisions very rapidly in social space. So you can be on a packed sidewalk in Manhattan uh, with thousands of people walking in all different directions and never run into anyone because we have hundreds of ways of sending subtle social signals about our intentions. And if you do happen to, you know, knock somebody, you don't have to turn around and apologize. You, you know, you, you can shrug your shoulders, I, you I can tell your head. I see at someone's least in New York. Eyes. Right, in New York. I see someone's yeah. eyes where they're leaning That's and right. I know which direction to go. That's right. Sure, okay. Right, and at an urban stop sign controlled intersection when, you know, all the cars arrive at the same time and there's pedestrians in the mix, right, you can navigate that mixing by making eye contact with the driver. Or the driver may use, you know, her hand to signal people like, oh, no, no, really, like, I, like, oh, thank you, right? So we can do that because we're humans. Cars don't have faces. And I would, in fact, argue that in order for autonomous vehicles to be able to navigate complex urban spaces, they may need to be designed with faces. Uh, the equivalent of a face, like a digital version of a face, or digital actual, version of like, a face. Okay, right. I mean, that, that's that's how our brains are hardwired: mm -hmm. is to respond to this arrangement with a you know eyes and a mouth. Right, and we send a lot of signals. Y that you're way. actually not talking about two cars interfacing. You're talking about the interface with humans and cars. That's right. Right. Urban stop sign controlled intersections with pedestrians. We may need to actually bane. have a face that kind of signals to you what the car's about to do. Yep. That's fascinating. I or never or, that. or I I see you right right and therefore oh you know, the, sure the, you know the rules you know the right of way rules apply right the, the Pixar movie may turn out to be prescient yeah which Pixar movie I'm I'm you mean like <laughs> Cars that movie oh, I see I've I've long avoided that one <laughs> I have daughters and there was never like a push to see Cars and I'm like I'm happy with that um, but that may be the future huh. In urban places, is this the place where the conflict actually is right now? Have, have we solved the open road stuff and we're really talking about how to make this work in cities? Is that where the friction point is today? Corey, I don't know. You know, I, I'd say that we're constantly working on improving the, the technology in, in all settings. Um, certainly, cities have represented the last frontier, and there are just so many more complex interactions, but we are certainly at a place where if the technology keeps progressing at this rate, uh, we're going to see dramatic improvements in safety and efficiency of these vehicles. Well, I would, I would say that it, it depends, right? So one of the things that's interesting to me is that as soon as the safety protocols require that the autonomous vehicle stop for any kid that bounces a ball into the street, in cities, it will take pedestrians all of about five minutes to realize as they're standing there in the pouring rain that all they need to do is to walk into traffic and all cars will stop. And as soon as pedestrians realize that, right, it will be very difficult to move cars through cities. And this is exactly what happened really, I mean, starting in the 1920s, but in a big way through the 1930s, that when General Motors and AAA realized that the only thing that they could do to get people to buy these expensive contraptions was to be able to promise speed. And that meant criminalizing walking in cities. So AAA invented the term jaywalking. It was a marketing term. And they went to every state legislature to make that illegal. 
previously in cities, you know, if you look at movies in cities, you know, up into the 1920s, people just wandered across the street wherever they felt like it. That got in the way of the speed of motor vehicles. And right now, when you go to the automotive conferences, they're talking about stepping up further criminalization of walking. So if, if we remove the threat of death from jaywalking, then the next logical thing to do is to automate the enforcement of pedestrian right-of-way rules, which means, of course, using facial recognition. And happily, you've all submitted your data to Facebook. So we have facial recognition for all of you now. Um, and it's uh, very easy to send you a citation um, if you violate the pedestrian right-of-way right of way rules. There is this sense that I had the last time I was in New York and experienced this, where there, there literally is, in many places, more people being moved on the 8-foot, 10-foot sidewalk than there is in the public, you know, in, in the street, in yeah, cars. In all six lanes. In all six lanes of traffic. That, you know, this once we have autonomous vehicles, this will this power structure will change unless... Those vehicles each have their because I I can picture the I don't know what we do in Minnesota I'm not saying we're like above this but I certainly can see in New York the angry like cabbie going hey you and then taking your photo and having the facial recognition and submit that like here's look at this criminal behavior and then having the fine kind of be automated even let's say we don't want to criminalize walking what's the alternative to that. Well, you, you make the infrastructure, you make the entire system better designed around people instead of around cars. I think that the criminalization of jaywalking was a very auto-centric mindset. We simply need to break that. We need to remind legislators and lawmakers that it is the people's space, it is the people's right of way. And that may mean uh, not only prioritizing active mobility and transit and other forms of transportation over these cars, but also means that investing the proper infrastructure to do so. Are there places then that, I mean, like the sidewalk in New York, where the density of humans walking is so great that we will actually ban cars then because they're not compatible in that way? They, they, that couldn't be done in a sense, the way you describe it? So this is something that many cities are starting to talk about, including San Francisco. So if your vehicle can drop you off and go park itself, um, it means that a lot of streets are not needed either for parking um, or for the through movement of cars. The car just drops you off the corner and half of streets could no longer serve the through, for the through movement of cars. The, the alternative view, though, that a lot of other folks are promoting is why not just get rid of sidewalks when you've got ubiquitous door-to-door mobility? Why would you need to walk anymore? Why not just eliminate the sidewalks so that you can add another two traffic lanes because we're going to need those two traffic lanes as bus ridership collapses and vehicle miles traveled increases dramatically as we reduce the time and financial cost of driving. But I I think that's also where we need to reshape mindsets because at the end of the day, it... It should be about promoting the externalities of people walking. I mean, the fact is you may have door-to-door transportation, which is certainly the business that we're in, but cities gain a benefit from people walking, not just not just from their mobility needs, but there's an economic benefit. There's a health benefit. There are all these external costs associated with promoting right. walking and biking and, frankly, being able to uh, be more leisurely. And, you know, 
we can talk all day about the the nightmare scenarios, but I think the trends have actually been rather positive in this regard. You know, even uh, Times Square now, you have large chunks that are closed off to traffic. And, you know, I don't think many people in New York would argue that that's been a bad thing. Right. Right. The, the film Wally. I think very accurately. We're uh, just hitting it, every yeah. Disney pretty soon. We're frozen. <laughs> well, no, like if you want to, if you want to think about the public health impacts yeah. of ubiquitous autonomous vehicles, the film Wall-E is spot on. But it also, I think, rather accurately reflects on how, in the past, motorist convenience has trumped all other values. And if we look at how we measure success in our industry, you know, level of service, the primary indicator of success for our industry is a metric of motorist convenience, and it always is more important than safety. Is there any chance that that changes as part of this transformation? And I say that as a skeptic that it's going to change because, as Jeff's kind of suggested, when I hear the autonomous vehicle manufacturers and advocates and the people developing this, they're not talking about uh, cities as places for people. They're talking about throughput of cars. And and look, we can get rid of traffic signals because now the cars will just be able to run three feet from each other and manage the intersections better. Is there a chance that we're not going just down that route? Corey, go ahead. You're. <laughs> it looks like you're formulating some... Uh, yeah, I think a big key here yeah. is whether autonomous vehicles are individually owned the way that cars have been in the 20th and early part of the 21st century, right. or if they are largely operated as part of shared fleets. If they are operated as shared fleets, which can promote the sharing of individual vehicles, you can satisfy uh, the same number of traffic needs with far fewer number of vehicles. So you, you're saying... It would basically be like a public service or it would be a, a, a private company that would own these and we wouldn't have to, people wouldn't own their own vehicles. So you'd have essentially fewer on the road. That's that's certainly the model that we are advocating for. Yeah. And we think is the future because it helps to promote a lot of the positive externalities of automation uh, without risking quite as many of the negatives. Okay. Right. And it also means that you don't have to choose one vehicle for every trip. So you can call up a pickup truck when it's time what? to go get compost, right? You can call up a Porsche How when it's How will I signal night. to my friends that I have a, because, you know. Because every time you show up in a different vehicle is why. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's, that's right. true. I, I live in central Minnesota and the big truck is the thing. We're not uh, Texas where you've got to have the, the, what do they call the thing that they hang on the back of the tailgate, the derogatory? You know what I'm talking yeah. about. We, we, don't, we don't have those quite yet. But you got to have the big truck if you're the hunter with the big boat and all that. Right, but, but you can have your really big truck when it's time to haul your boat out sure, to the lake. Sure. But if you're just going into town for groceries or going out on date night. Right. You know, ah, so like, my wife might like a smaller car for date night. Okay. Smaller I get cars you. are a little cozier <laughs> on date night. I want to pivot a little bit to, I think, the suburban commuting notion. I think particularly in my part of the world, which is not Manhattan, it's, it's a smaller town setting. But even when we get down to like where some of my family members live in, in suburbs and exurbs, the, the promise of autonomous vehicles for them is one of, I can live out here at essentially less cost to my time and less cost for transportation. Like this is, this is actually gonna improve my quality of life. 
make that case or make the opposite case. And I'll, I'll, Corey, I'll let you start with, with that. Go ahead. Like, make the case that they're right or make the case that they're not right. I, I think that, as has been, been said in this field for many years, density is destiny. Okay. And even if autonomous vehicles, and in this scenario, I think they probably are imagining individually owned autonomous vehicles. Oh, no doubt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I still think that people value their time. And for at least for me, you know, it doesn't matter if I have a three-hour commute sitting on a packed train or a three-hour commute uh, sitting in a private autonomous pod. I don't want to commute for three hours. I think that we've seen an ebb and flow testing the limits of just how far people are willing to be and are, are willing to go. But at the end of the day, you know, you also don't see a lot of people carpooling to work, even in, in those environments, which, you know, if you're not the driver in a carpool, is it that different from having an AV? I agree that, you know, we like our lives and that there is a sort of upper limit to what folks will be willing to do every day for their commute. However, autonomous vehicle technology changes the nature of time. So rather than having to hold on to the steering wheel and pay attention to the road in front of you, you can do other things on your commute, right? You can sleep, you can watch internet cat videos. Uh, you can also, depending upon how the vehicle is designed, uh, you know, work at the gym, right? Sure. The shoe store can come to you and you can shop for shoes on your commute in the shoe store, right? So these things are already being designed. The sex industry, right, is obviously going to retreat to autonomous vehicles, right? And if you look at the history of the internet and who made money off of the internet, uh, for those of you who were not around in the 80s, right, there was all of this promise of the internet changing the world and solving all these problems and all these people were going to make money in these innovative ways. And there were only three ways that people made money off the internet, right? It was uh, advertising, the big way. Right, It was bundled services. Oh, if you like this book, perhaps you'd like that book. And it was sex. And I think the same will be true for autonomous vehicles. Right, that the, that the folks who will make money off of the future of mobility will not make money off of mobility. They will make money off of capturing the value of time of the people inside the vehicle. I saw a thing once where it actually talked about how McDonald's would essentially pay to have the trip stop at McDonald's. So they'd subsidize your, like you want to go from point A to point B. Right. We will pay for that trip for you if you throw in a stop at McDonald's of five minutes or 10 minutes along the way. Right. That seems like a very strange world to me. So who's the biggest investor in AV technology? I, I don't know. Enlighten me. <laughs> You're it's, it, it was it was it was your question. You should answer it. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, Alphabet, Google, Waymo. Sure. Right. By yeah. far the biggest investor in AV technology. What's Google's revenue model? They sell information. Ah, geez, what is it? Yeah. yeah. So ninety-five percent of Alphabet's revenue comes from advertising. So why is an ad company? the biggest investor in automotive technology so, today. So my wife does a search for shoes because she's interested in buying a pair of shoes. Yeah. And, and, and she gets in the car to come home. The autonomous car picks her up at the office. Yeah. And she gets a little thing that says, you could save $5 on this trip if you're willing to swing by shoe store X on the way home. And she says, 
I would love to do that because it's right in my wheelhouse of what I'm. Or the for. car already knows what your wife's shoe size is. It stops by the <laughs> Amazon warehouse, picks up forty pairs of shoes in her size, uh-huh. and while she's on the commute, there are all the shoes for her to try on, and she can take whichever pairs she wants home, and it automatically charges uh, her credit card. So now you're making the case that the suburban commuter is the ideal person because they're going to actually have more essentially captured time uh, in the vehicle. Like like density, uh, urban living may not be that great if you only have short trips. So and, Corey here. No, I, I, I do want to push back on this notion, <laughs> on this notion just I, yeah. a little bit because I, I think it is a perfectly plausible outcome. I, I don't think it is the likely one. The reason for that is um, – how we've seen the media industry over the last five, 10, even 15 years. And that has been a trend away from advertising where people have demonstrated a willingness to pay a little bit more so that they don't have to put up with ads. They don't have to put up with things they don't necessarily want. Um, So poor people stop at McDonald's. Wealthy people can pay. Or the, or the, the, your trip is free. But in order to be allowed to look out the windshield, you've got to pay five bucks to turn off the ads. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the Hulu business model. Don't, don't give any ideas to the airline industry. <laughs> One of the things that I think transportation policy people have been pushing for, as opposed to a gas tax uh, or some other you know, more blunt instrument for funding transportation is a mileage tax, something that would be more of a user fee. Is is this a a mechanism whereby we get to that? It, will people get used to paying for transportation by the mile or by the foot or by like a different increment as opposed to gas tax? And is is that a healthy thing? I mean, is that is that one of the reasons why we should be excited about this? You're both nodding, and nodding doesn't make for good podcasts. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was waiting for Corey. I, I certainly think that it has tremendous new opportunities for transportation revenue. The gas tax has been uh, underfunded and you know adjusted for inflation, falling for uh, 20 years now. And a big reason for that has been a reluctance to go to anything else. There's not only a reluctance to raise the gas tax because of a uh, direct line to consumers' relationship with gas prices. Um, But there are also structural problems with the alternative. A lot of people, you know, say what you want about privacy today, there is still a discomfort with the idea of the government tracking your movements. And that's sort of inherent in paying uh, via VMT. I think that as you move to uh, more autonomous vehicles and you more separate the uh, the rider from either fuel or from the mileage themselves, I do think that new revenue streams become far more possible than they've been in the past. Um, go ahead. So in the United States, uh, we decided not to socialize medicine or housing or food for poor people. We socialized only one thing, which is driving and parking. In the transportation world, we completely ignore basic economics and we don't understand that congestion is simply what happens when the demand for mobility equals supply. We use time to balance supply and demand in transportation rather than money. And the result is all of the economic problems, you know, that happen with communism 
uh, only it happens in the mobility space in America. So pricing actually allows us to manage the transportation system, right? Roadway capacity is a limited renewable resource, and it needs to be managed. Uh, and so one of the advantages of particularly fleet service um, autonomous vehicle technology and services like Lyft is it allows us to set the right price and it allows us to do so in a way that protects the privacy of the travelers as well. So government doesn't need to know who you are. It just needs to know how much space are you taking up uh, relative to the level of congestion on the road. And there's there's an opportunity here for additional policy levers to promote good policy externalities as well. And pricing is the key to that. A lot of people today don't factor in their uh, their cost of mobility. Once you have bought a car, uh, perception-wise, that's a sunk cost. You don't price every trip the way that uh, you do if you're using other forms of transportation, such as transit or uh, ride-sharing. Um, and one of the levers that we see here is a strong uptake in sharing. Because pooled ride services, if you offer people a, uh, a price discount and it's not balanced against a significant time loss. People are choosing to share cars in the way that they have not historically. You know, in the markets where Lyft Line is offered, we have more than 40% utilization in some cities. That number is over 50. And this is for a product that's only been offered for, you know, four-ish years at this point. Um, and so the uptake of sharing vehicles, getting more people into those cars is also far more likely as people get out of driving their own cars and it gives an opportunity for incentives to share or incentives to promote behaviors that they otherwise might not. One of the places where I've seen the most enthusiasm for uh, autonomous vehicle technology is in the realm of transit, particularly buses. I've seen estimates as high as 50, 55% of the cost of running a bus line is the driver. Let's just talk about the the chances for this to really impact transit. Make the case that this is a net positive for transit, that this is going to really improve the way we uh, so if use transit, transit. If transit takes a stronger leadership role in the development and deployment of AV technology, this is fantastically good for transit and fantastically good for cities. Um, in fact, it's in bus rapid transit where buses get their own dedicated right-of-way. That's actually where AV technology is pretty darn right. That's going to be the first best application of AV technology in cities. Because you don't have any complexity. Right, it's exactly. A, like yeah. you, can map, you can do the 3D mapping of the right. entire corridor. It's very, like, you, you, it's, a, it's a fixed world. Right. So the magic of using autonomy for transit is that when you're not having to pay for the driver, and it can oftentimes actually be greater than 50% of the operating cost. And for transit agencies, it's all about operating cost because they get their capital money from elsewhere for the most part. And so they're driven by their operating budget. So if you don't have to pay the operator, you can operate transit at very high frequencies at effectively zero marginal cost. So that bus line that's you know slow and unreliable and running every half an hour, uh, you can just run it every two minutes so that the next, you can always see the next bus coming. And you know this would be true on trunk routes, like you wouldn't do that everywhere. Um, but taking low performing bus lines and turning them effectively into having nearly the same capacity as a subway 
is something we could do quickly and cheaply in cities if transit agencies take the lead on AV technology and if municipalities give transit what it really needs, which is dedicated right-of-way and traffic signal prioritization, and focus on the movement of people rather than the movement of vehicles. How does this tie into that concept of you know, point-to-point service, essentially? It, it is absolutely consistent. Yeah. You know, the, the lift model has always been about getting people out of cars and living more multimodal lifestyles. You know, to be completely frank, if you would rather uh, walk or bike, that's that's societally good. We have been an enabler for people to fill those gaps that historically they have relied on personal vehicles to do. But as people give up their cars, they live more multimodal lifestyles. The flip side of this is in order to give people the confidence to give up their cars, they need to know that they can quickly and affordably get around everywhere. And transit's going to be a critical component of that. This scenario, this vision of a shared mobility future without personally driven cars only works if transit thrives. That's right. Right. So, I mean, Lyft doesn't work if transit collapses and everyone's stuck in traffic in a Lyft vehicle. Right. 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 So, Corey, remind me, there's a really extraordinarily high percentage of Lyft users in San Francisco that have a, a transit station as a trip beginning or end. Do you remember what that figure is? Yeah, it's about 25%. About yeah. 25% of... So they're getting picked up or dropped off at a transit station. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so al- already people are using TNCs to fill those gaps for the first and last mile for transit. I think that as autonomous vehicles drops that cost even further and improves transit, that's going to become far more dramatic and is going to be especially critical when you're talking about commuters. All right. Another thing that we've already found as well is that it's cheaper for transit agencies to provide free Uber and Lyft rides to their stations than it is to build parking for passengers. <laughs> like already today. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, and we actually just launched a partnership in New Jersey to do just that. You know, I, I grew up in a New Jersey commuter town. Um, and just a couple of a couple of towns over, we launched a partnership in Summit, New Jersey, which had reached its limits on available parking. They had a decision to make. We can either get more people to the train via TNCs or they could build more parking. They, they chose the former. What are governments doing right today in anticipation of this? And, 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 and where are the places where they need to make some changes? They, they really governments need to change their approach. Corey, you look like you want, you want to start with that one? Well, we're, we're actively partnering with local governments for first and last mile partnerships, for a dedicated safe ride home, for paratransit service. Uh, So there are a lot of cities that are very actively thinking about how they can innovate, how they can, you know, move from being a um, mode operator to a mobility provider. That's not necessarily the case everywhere, but via those partnerships, via the enhancement of service, and also with fairly simple street design, you know, cities can be pretty innovative to uh, break break this notion of auto-centric cities and move back to providing services for people. So I really like what Seattle has done in the way it has emphasized that the city owns the public right-of-way and the city has a responsibility to manage the public right-of-way for the public good, while at the same time welcoming, you know, private companies and technology into that space. But but Seattle very clearly articulated its values 
in its new mobility playbook, which has enabled them to make quicker decisions about saying yes or no to private operators. Like the city can say, well, you know, that's very nice that you have this new technology, but how are you serving the people of Seattle? Other cities uh, like San Francisco, I think, are good at curb management. So that's one of the areas where municipalities have the authority that they need in order to manage transportation is this the, the fact that, you know, whether you're Amazon or Lyft, the amount of activity at the curb is greatly increasing in cities and that that needs to be managed. So and ha- having a parked car there may not be the highest and best use. That's right, right. right. But, you know, pick up and drop off and resolving the conflict between pick up and drop off and through bikes or transit stopping or people with disabilities being able to get out of their car safely. So there's a design challenge uh, there as well. At the federal level, I think we're really struggling, though, because the federal government um, likes simple, one-size-fits-all, rural-oriented solutions. And the federal government needs to uh, delegate um, an additional amount of authority to local jurisdictions to be able to define the public good and to manage streets accordingly. This is going to be really tough uh, at the state and federal level to um, allow municipalities that right band of flexibility. Because we don't want municipalities to run amok, but increasingly municipalities are going to have to establish uh, different rules around things like pickup and drop off, around safety um, and speed. We see this with funding too, particularly with federal funding for transit agencies where, you know, depending on which uh, bucket of money it comes from, you may have very different limitations on how that funding can be allocated. And so, Whereas uh, a city may be able to use federal funding for uh, rideshare service to supplement its guaranteed ride home program, it can't use that same funding for uh, rural transportation services if you know they're not able to provide adequate service via other means. And so, you know, I think that if on the federal level they innovate a little bit and open things up to provide more flexibility to transit agencies to allocate that money how they see fit and how they think it benefits them, mobility could be enhanced overall. In my hometown, 14,000 people, there's a big push to build a parking ramp downtown because, of course, we don't have enough parking, which you're already laughing. It's absurd. It's absurd on like so many levels. But this is a small town thing. But I go to medium and big size cities. I was in Boston. I was chatting with some people. There was a new apartment complex that went in with 60 units. A couple blocks from a transit stop, they required 80 parking stalls in Boston. And I'm like, what hope do I have if in Boston they can't figure this out? What what would you say right now today to governments about parking and about making investments that were 20-year, 30-year, 50-year investments in parking infrastructure? What, what, what What would your advice to them be? Eliminate parking minimums. Okay. Um, Think like an economist. So parking is great, but it's expensive. Parking is a form of access. So what's the most cost-effective mix of access investments in order to meet your accessibility goal? Uh, Parking may be part of that, but it's really, really expensive. And we're already seeing rapid declines in parking demand in cities like San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco is selling off its municipally owned garages, as is Oakland, because it's cheaper 
always to take Uber or Lyft downtown than it is to drive yourself and pay for parking. Like, why would I ever drive my own car into downtown San Francisco? That's crazy. Plus, it means I can't drink as much. Sure, sure. And if you can't drink as much, you're not spending as much, you're not spending as much time out, you're not exploring new neighborhoods necessarily. I, I think parking has been the canary in the coal mine, where already we have seen pretty significant declines in parking demand in the wake of the rise of services like Lyft. I think that is a strong demonstration that people are willing to use alternative modes to get around in only a very short period of time. As people begin to actually give up their cars more frequently, as a number of studies have shown they're beginning to do, that parking demand is only going to decline even further. And parking is expensive to build. It's expensive to maintain. I think, uh, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, I, I think I've seen that the number for some high-rise buildings up to 40% of the cost of a new structure can go to building parking. But what if instead you could reallocate that to more affordable housing, to more dining and retail, to uh, maybe building a smaller structure and putting in more parks and parklets and green space? There's a lot that we can do if we don't have to build parking. That's right. And, you know, if it costs you, you know, $20,000 to $60,000 to build a parking space, which are, you know, pretty typical figures... That means you need to charge between $10 and $30 a day every day over the useful life of that structure in order to pay off that cost. So that may be a reasonable investment, but how many more lattes are you selling and what's the tax revenue off of those lattes? Maybe not $10 a day worth. Plus, at $10 a day, what if you simply gave all downtown employees an extra $10 every day not to drive, right? Can you solve your parking problem through incentives rather than through infrastructure? So projections are hard, especially about the future, right? It's, uh, I, I want to ask you a couple questions. There was very Yogi Berra. I think it was an exact quote. It's, uh, I, I want to ask you a couple future projection questions, understanding that it's more of a gateway to where you think it's going as opposed to like a number I'll come back 20 years from now. And, and so vehicles per capita. So number of, of vehicles per capita, more or less 20 years from now. Fewer vehicles per capita, greater vehicle miles traveled. I was going to be my capita. second question was vehicle miles travel. Okay, I'll ask them together. <laughs> vehicle miles travel per capita more or less then. So f- combine those two. So more vehicles. So on our current trajectory, per capita vehicle miles traveled and congestion will increase dramatically over the next 20 years on our current trajectory. Um, it's very easy to change that and to significantly reduce per capita vehicle miles traveled and make cities better. But that's going to require a very different approach to the governance and financing and management of mobility. Okay. You have an opinion on these? Uh, Far fewer vehicles per capita and less VMT. Okay. So both will go down. I, I think we're going to see a strong movement toward density and a rise of better, more efficient transit services, which I think will drive down per capita VMT. We talked about transit earlier and the, the great benefit of automated vehicles in terms of transit being now we can lay off all the workers and have greater service and da 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 da. But, but the lay off all the workers is the thing we kind of just gloss over. We can have automated 
door-to-door taxi service without the, the driver in it. We can have over-the-road trucking now without the trucker. These jobs tend to be, in some ways, entry-level jobs, or jo- not entry-level, but the, the jobs where these are either ways to start with very little and accumulate something over time. They're ways to, if you don't have a college degree and you're not, they're good, like, there are modern blue collar jobs is basically what they've almost become. That's right. Become. And they're living wage jobs. And they're, they're living jobs wage that you jobs. can support your family with and you can get your family out of poverty in these jobs. I know many people who are over the road truckers yeah. and it, it is a hard job. It's a hard job, but you can support a family as an over the road right. trucker. I, I come from a truck driving family. Okay. So you get where I'm going with this. As people who are passionate about cities and places and we see a lot of potential for this technology, at what point should we pause and and have this other conversation? At what point should we be aware of that? Or is that something for the economists and the invisible hand to deal with? Is that like not our, our purview? Well, we need to be aware of that immediately uh, because... 4.4 million Americans um, have a driver job. That's a lot of people. And um, ignoring that reality will not only be bad for those individuals, it will also be politically destructive. Um, I think we're seeing uh, in our current federal politics um, some of the effects of ignoring uh, working class America. Um, so part of the starting place is having a conversation with Uh, our partners in labor about the changes that we're facing so that we can plan uh, well for the transition so that the transition isn't just thrust upon us uh, without a plan. Another thing that we observe as well is that in mobility, we actually need a lot more service orientation in mobility. So if the bus driver isn't driving the bus, that bus driver could instead help disabled people get on and off the bus. That bus driver could provide information from the Chamber of Commerce about the stuff that's available in downtown. That bus driver could act, and you know, I'm quite serious, like a flight attendant in first class, right? I mean, why not use this transition in order to make mobility have an extraordinarily high level of service? Uh, rather than the situation that we have now where there's, you know, not particularly good service on public transit in America. Go ahead, Corey. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. I think that the opportunity for more jobs is actually pretty impressive uh, for service jobs in the vehicle, for childcare, for in-vehicle bartender, or even if you're talking about loading and unloading for, for shipping rather than driving. I mean, just because those jobs are no longer behind the steering wheel doesn't mean that they're going to go away altogether. I think it's also important to consider that as more and more people give up their own personal cars, they're going to rely more on services that are going to likely have other uh, either employees or contractors or jobs associated with them. You know, one other thing that I'd like to add is the vast, vast majority of drivers on the Lyft platform do so part-time. They are either students, they have another job, they are retired. I think it's more than 90% of our drivers already drive fewer than 20 hours a week. This is not the kind of thing where all of a sudden like a rug is going to be pulled out on people who rely on rely on these services. And we actually project that demand for human drivers is only going to increase, at least in the uh, short and medium term, 
as automation comes online, because more people will choose to give up their cars. And this is a longer discussion, but the likelihood is that autonomous vehicles will not just be dropped in into the ecosystem and operate the way that person-driven cars are today. They're much more likely to operate within a set geographic area. And so if you no longer have a car but need service beyond that geographic area, there's going to be an increased demand for human drivers as well. Right. And then all the benefits that you currently get as a Teamster member uh, working for a big trucking company, right? Things like a, a, a real wage, health care, uh, retirement benefits, right? We need to have a grown-up national conversation about making sure that all Americans are afforded basic dignity in their work and can retire when it comes time to retire. And they don't have to be terrified that they're going to lose health care and not be able to uh, take their kids to the doctor. I don't understand. You seem to be saying you're going to take away my parking spot and give me health care. Like, what are you what are you saying? So this is, seems very un-American. Jeff. So the, the cost of providing free parking <laughs> in America greatly exceeds the cost of providing universal health care. Oh, uh, come on now. <laughs> I'm smiling at you. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding you. Anyway, I want to take some questions from the audience. Uh, we're going to ask you to come and sit up here if you've got one and, and sit in the big chair. So give us your name. Give us where you're from. And then do these guys a respect of giving like a nice, succinct question uh, that they can tackle in the time we got left. So please go for it. Hi, I'm Dr. John Gilderbloom from the University of Louisville Center for Sustainable Urban Neighborhoods. Chuck, thanks for letting me come on here. Two quick questions. Does Uber and the other services mean a reduction in congestion, especially if Uber's gonna go to uh, driverless cars? Second question I have is um, your reaction to the uh, work of Jeff Speck, who's done a devastating critique of uh, driverless cars and uh, how it's unhealthy for, for cities. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so we're we're all about Uber, or is it? Uh, it's funny. The, you you are. I I, 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 I wasn't about to call you out in real time. <laughs> it, it is interesting because uh, Uber is becoming the Kleenex. The Kleenex. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to use that term too. So is that is that something you guys? We could talk about that offline, <laughs> but uh, go for it. Um, congestion. And then uh, response to, to Jeff's critique. So start with the congestion. So services like Lyft have significant potential to reduce congestion as we know it in our cities. A big part of this is the number of riders who choose to share rides. 75% of commuters not only drive to work, but they do so alone. Compare this with 40% of uh, Lyft riders who are choosing to share that ride already. And we are getting more people into fewer cars. You know. The other component here is the strong correlation between TNC use and transit use. Uh, there was a study that came out, I think just last week, that showed that 80% of daily drivers never use transit services, but 95% of weekly TNC users, Lyft users, uh, will also use transit. Uh, and so as more people begin to use services like Lyft, they begin to live much more multimodal lifestyles. If you're a driver, you tend to just be a driver. But if you're a TNC rider, you may choose to share your ride. You may choose to walk. You may choose to bike. You may choose to use transit. You will live more multimodal lifestyles. And this, this should help to decrease traffic. Now, it is important to emphasize that there are 
a lot more causes of traffic than simply the vehicles on the road. There is the increase in uh, construction with a good economy. There's the increase in deliveries with trucks that are have to be idling for a longer period of time as those deliveries are made. Uh, and quite frankly, populations are growing and our cities are not. Just as a math equation goes, when you've got more people in a confined area and they're not choosing to use alternative modes of transportation, they're still driving themselves, you're going to see more congestion. But Lyft can uh, be a, a big help to alleviate that. Uh, and I'll respond to say that I firmly believe in Lyft's vision of the future of mobility. Um, and I believe that autonomous vehicles can be an incredibly useful tool for uh, stopping the fact that 40,000 Americans die in traffic every year, that uh, social equity in mobility space is utterly disastrous in, in our country, right? There's so many things that autonomous vehicles can do positively for safety and roadway efficiency and social equity. But the current trajectory that we're on is very bad for all of those things. Our current trajectory is showing that traffic congestion is increasing and the efficiency of the network is decreasing because people are fleeing to quality, right? People are abandoning crappy bus service uh, and spending more to take Lyft because it's more convenient. So we need to do a lot of action in order to avoid all of the... Uh, terrible stories that Jeff Speck is telling. Um, all of that can be avoided if we manage the transportation system for the public good, if we get pricing right, if we manage parking correctly, if we make sure that public transit uses this technology to become more efficient and more convenient and more service-oriented. But if these things don't happen, yeah, this it's, it's bad news. So uh, getting there is going to require action from a whole lot of different industries and organizations that are not used to partnering with each other. Government is uh, going to have to step in and manage the public right-of-way for the public good, and we have never managed our streets before in this country. All right, my name is Ella Rasp, and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm a student studying transportation. Um, and my question um, is I think we can pretty much all agree that paratransit service is a piece of the mobility sphere that's pretty ripe for upending right now. Um, but with private companies um, more actively participating in serving mobility needs, but having the incentive to serve the greatest proportion of the market at the lowest cost, how do we ensure that the benefits of the autonomous future are adequately serving the needs of individuals with different mobility needs and small children and etc. Well, we're seeing early early signs of that even in a pre-automation world with the rise of services like Lyft. We have a partnership in Boston with the MBTA to provide this paratransit service. You know, historically, paratransit service is um, it's necessary, but it's not the most reliable if you have to order a vehicle 24 hours in advance uh, and you're either there for the pickup or you're not. And if you're at a doctor's appointment that's running late, do you have to choose between getting your care or catching your ride home? Uh, it, it just it hasn't worked, but we have helped to make that service much more on demand by partnering for power transit service with the MBTA. They were not able to. Not, not only able to provide much better service for paratransit, uh, dropping those ETAs from 24 hours to something like you know, 10 or 20 minutes, but the cost savings were also significant. I think they saved something like 60 cents on the dollar 
the numbers were staggering. And as a result, demand for the services also increased. You know, and this is just one early stage partnership. I think that as the services mature and autonomous vehicles drive that cost down even further, power transit service can uh, be aided accordingly. Jeff, is this a is this one of those situations where kind of a bifurcated system, the way you just described, is going to be a problem? I mean, if we're focusing on higher quality for a, a marginal few and kind of allowing the rest of it to decline, is, is this going to become a greater and greater problem? Right. So if we turn our streets over to private corporations, private corporations are profit-seeking entities, uh, and that that's fine. But government, again, needs to manage the street for the public good, which means defining precisely what we mean by the public good. It also means having grown-up conversations about equity to make sure that folks are not left behind as private corporations seek the wealthiest and most privileged uh, to serve them really well and to leave everyone else literally behind. And I think paratransit is a great case study. Um, I had to take my mother to her dialysis appointments three times a week. And her story was that, you know, she would talk with her fellow dialysis patients because they were stuck there for three hours. Um, and people who took paratransit didn't get transplants. Thank you very much for this conversation. It's been good. Uh, Jason Hercules uh, with Urban Footprint and um, in Oakland, California. And I think part of the conversation that we've had the last couple of decades, particularly with transit, it's uh, fixed route transit, it's impact on the on land use and shaping um, the urban fabric and those places that have strong um, have strong transit services, or at least that it, it is part of shaping the urban fabric in its locality. And then from there, um, more sprawling patterns take place. So as we're shifting this conversation from the benefits of transit to the benefits of mobility and providing mobility services, what are your um, thoughts on, on transit's ability or our ability to still shape our land use and shape our urban fabric? Or what's, what are sort of, sort of your prog prognosis for moving forward and that our ability to still have and make good land use decisions if we're talking more about mobility and all the, the multitude of services that are out there? You know, it, it used to be that transit-oriented development was reliant on significant capital investments. And we're beginning to get away from that a little bit uh, because mobility has been so dramatically improved, particularly in cities uh, with the growth of services like Lyft. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C., um, and entire neighborhoods have now developed out of whole cloth with new restaurant industries, with nightlife uh, in parts of town that are historically really not accessible by transit. Uh, and that's shaping the very fabric of those neighborhoods. It's increasing property values. It's increasing tax revenues. Because all of a sudden, places like uh, Ivy City in Washington, D.C. are now a destination rather than, you know, a place where uh, if you didn't otherwise live there, you wouldn't really have a reason to go. Um, and so I, I think that we can redefine what we think of in terms of TOD uh, as mobility access increases. We're seeing a flight to quality. So quality places are thriving. Places that are super walkable and sociable and safe for everyone um, are, are thriving spectacularly. Like one of the greatest luxuries um, that we're seeing anew is uh, the luxury to be able to walk for everything that you need. And on the other hand, I think one of the other interesting promises of services like Lyft um, is as we suburbanize poverty, 
right? Right now, we're, we're asking low-income households to spend an ever greater share of their disposable time and money on mobility. Um, and this is denying low-income households paths out of poverty that Americans have experienced for generations. So services like Lyft um, have the potential uh, for reducing some of the negative impact on the suburbanization of poverty by at least allowing folks to be able to get to the rapid transit station at the edge of the region and still have access to employment um, and to reduce the amount of time and money they're spending on mobility. Uh, those, those folks who are rich um, are going to be able to enjoy, you know, spectacular walkable environments more like, you know, we would see in European cities. Um, because you don't need to figure out where to park the damn car, right? It's parking that has destroyed walkability and quality in most American cities. Yeah. I'd also like to just very quickly add that contrary to popular perception, uh, use of Lyft is pretty equal across all socioeconomic demographics, uh, which is really a testament to show that particularly lower income uh, folks are relying on the service, especially uh, the shared service, to gain faster mobility that they simply haven't had access to before. We are out of time. And so I, I, this has been a great conversation. I'm going to give each of these guys a chance to make some, uh, some final thoughts of anything we haven't touched. But uh, thank you, everybody, for attending and being part of this. Corey Urschau from uh, Lyft. Do you have any anything you'd like to kind of add at the end? Anything we didn't cover? We covered a lot of ground, but I want to give you a chance if you've got some final thoughts or statement you want to make. Well, first, I'm, I'm looking forward to Jeff's book, which will inevitably be titled Flight to Quality. Um, <laughs> I, I hope he I, writes I, such a book. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that one. New mobility options have allowed us to completely rethink both the present and the future. But in order to do so, we can't just be thinking about it. We need to act. And we need to break these mindsets that have historically dominated the mobility conversation, which has prioritized driving and driving in personal vehicles. Um, parking is a critical example. But also, you know, we need to invest in higher quality transit. We need to invest in better active mobility options uh, for pedestrians and cyclists. We need to make living a multimodal lifestyle uh, preferable to having your own car, both from an economic and for a convenience perspective. These are all going to require uh, dedicated policy minds that are not always going to be popular in real time. But as long as we keep mobility person-centric rather than vehicle-centric, we have opportunities to really reshape our cities in a very positive way. Uh, Jeff, one of the most engaging people I know. This has not been a disappointment to me. It's been a great hour. Please, any final thoughts? You get the last word. We need a better vision of the city of the future. Almost all visions of the city of the future are rooted in this idea of limitless free mobility. So from the Futurama exhibit at the World's Fair to the Jetsons to Blade Runner. Almost all visions of the future start with mobility. This year marked the very first time in our cultural history where we had an image of a city of the future that was rooted in the idea that mobility could be a tool of inclusion rather than a tool of exclusion. And that vision was bizarrely 
from uh, the Marvel comic Black Panther, Wakanda is one of the most compelling visions of the city of future I've ever seen, particularly as a mobility nerd. I have had to go back and watch the movie twice just to see how incredibly brilliant they were about using mobility as a tool of inclusion where uh, everyone can move freely around Wakanda without getting in the way or causing harm or endangering the safety of other people. Now I know next time I come to San Francisco, you and I are just going to go to movies together. (laughs) (laughs) That's the third movie reference we've had today in this uh, short podcast. All all of which owned by the Walt Disney Corporation. Yeah, that's true. We're kind (laughs) of shills for the the mouse. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Uh, Thanks for listening. Give it up for these guys. They've done a great job. And uh, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.